Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. And this is Abby Martin. Hope everybody is doing well out there. Hope everyone's doing really, really good. Um, this week is the 17-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, Robbie. Yeah. I celebrated by um, wearing an American flag cape, eating like 12 hot dogs, uh, <laughs> burning an effigy of the World Trade Centers on my front lawn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Dick Cheney's favorite holiday um, and Giuliani's favorite holiday. It's so great that the people who were involved in these massive, quote unquote, failures of intelligence on the day of the attacks have been just catapulted to extremely high positions of power since that day, Robbie. And we can get into that in a second. But most notably, I mean, Giuliani. Oh, my God. Is, yeah. You know, he's he's side by side with Trump right now. He was the 9-11 criminal. Um, we don't have to go into too much detail about it, but there's a lot of information out there about how Giuliani, even if you don't even go into the conspiracy realm, there's several bizarre things about his behavior on the day of 9-11. He was supposed to actually stay in this thing called the OEM command bunker in Building 7 as the attacks were happening. It was designed to be a command center during an emergency or a terrorist attack. He evacuated this command center. He did these walking press conferences on 9-11, spending all this time talking to the media, acting like a hero. All while this was happening, firefighters trying to rescue people out of the towers had no idea that the towers were going to collapse. Like, clearly they had, why would they think that? No other building even that had severe damage had ever collapsed like that before. It didn't cross anyone's mind, especially the firefighters, that this building would collapse. Tons of firefighters went in there. Apparently, Rudy Giuliani, according to his own quotes, was told by someone from the OEM command bunker that one of the towers was about to collapse before any of the towers collapsed. So he got every he tried to escape and got everybody out of there. Um, the odd thing about that is there's not even any record that Rudy Giuliani or his city government officials tried to warn any of the firefighters about that happening. So somehow Rudy Giuliani was privileged enough to know this information and save his own life and the life of his like aides or whatever. And on top of that, even if they wanted to convey that information to the firefighters in the towers, apparently their radios didn't even weren't even capable of it because Rudy Giuliani not upgraded their radios. This was something that firefighters were furious about after 9-11 and turned into a big deal at the commission hearings. I mean, you could actually see people standing up and screaming at Giuliani during the 9-11 commission hearings because he didn't upgrade the firefighters to the proper equipment that they should have had. And in a lot of ways, he's responsible for their deaths for multiple reasons. You know, sort of the official narrative now is that Rudy Giuliani with the FBI and other and other government agencies wanted to really quickly clean up the World Trade Center crime scene because they wanted Wall Street to reopen. That's sort of like the cynical, oh, those motherfuckers wanted to reopen Wall Street, sacrifice people's health. They didn't um, look for all the human remains like they really should have thoroughly. And, and some of these companies that dispose of the steel have actually connections to the mafia. Rudy Giuliani's family is connected to the mafia. Rudy Giuliani is an extremely dirty figure. I mean, and he even goes back to helping cover up things with the BCCI and General Noriega. So, you know, there's a very bizarre history with Rudy Giuliani going back to the deep state in the 80s. By the end of this year, more people will have died from the toxic exposure from 9-11 that were actually killed. 
that day. So as we know, you know, they said the air was safe to breathe and thousands have been diagnosed with cancer since that day that were in the vicinity of the World Trade Center, if not first responders themselves helping pull people out of the rubble. Just again, no, no accountability. People are still dying from cancer because of the criminal negligence of the government to actually tell people to, to go out there and not provide proper breathing masks. Yeah, and it's a, definitely a continuing cover-up in the sense that the media hasn't even properly explained the fact that the World Trade Center buildings were filled to the brim with asbestos. And a lot of these deaths, as far as I understand, are actually mesothelioma. Yep. Just thinking about it logically, when the World Trade Center buildings were built in the, in the early 70s, asbestos abatement wasn't even like a thing in law yet. It was still legal to fill buildings with asbestos. The World Trade Center buildings were the biggest in the world at the time, right before the asbestos laws really came into effect. Think about how much fucking asbestos must have been in there. Oh my God. It's hard to actually technically compare, but you know, you could make the argument that it had the most asbestos in that structure of any buildings ever built in the world at the time. Right. That's pretty fucking nuts that the right. just general American public isn't aware of that. And that's sort of been hidden from us. Why is it toxic dust? They, they demolish yeah, buildings in other parts of the world and people around that building that got, you know, demolished don't all die of cancer. Right. So there's something obviously being hidden from us about that. There's a, and that's what I mean by continuing cover up. It's not just right. we wanted to reopen Wall Street. It's darker. It's, it's, it's just really sick. Yeah, and you just did a really extensive, almost two-hour interview with the authors of The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. It's an incredible book, uh, just an extremely mind-numbing story that I didn't even realize was part of this entire cover-up, that it really just leaves some glaring holes um, and just dire questions about the attacks, namely these intelligence agencies that not necessarily colluded, but omitted and obfuscated direct evidence that would have led to the prevention of the attacks, namely the CIA, but also the NSA. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't we just go over that really quickly, just the bare bones of this. I mean, we often hear a lot of the, th you know, the 9-11 official narrative is that there were these intelligence failures and that it was incompetence and the rivalry between agencies that caused the attacks. And that's sort of what let the attacks occur, more or less what we've been told over time. The third thing I just mentioned, that the rivalry between agencies is what basically caused the attacks and let them slip through. There is a kernel of truth to that, only in the sense that what's been revealed in John Duffy and Ray Novoselsky's book is that the CIA specifically deliberately withheld information that could have instantly unraveled the entire 9-11 plot. And not only did they deliberately withhold it, they did it for almost an entire year. They had ample opportunities to share this information with the FBI and the White House, and apparently they did not. On top of that, they actually created a fake paper trail to make it appear that they had told the FBI when they actually, in fact, did not. When you take all this into account, it really does make it appear that the CIA was actually complicit in the 9-11 attacks by, and, and when I say that, I mean that they knew that a USS Cole plotter, someone who was on a terrorist watch list, who they believed was instrumental in organizing the USS Cole bombing, they allowed him to enter the United States, live in San Diego, and 
these two guys were taking flying lessons, were linking up with other people that had links to suspected terrorism, and then were able to buy plane tickets and board the planes and, and carry out the attacks. One of the interesting things that came out of John and Ray's research is that Richard Clark is actually the one who really sort of honed in on this, that he believes that if the CIA told anybody, him, even if they just told him, that because he been, was tasked with counterterrorism, he was he was the top of the counterterrorism unit. Yeah, he believes that if he had that information, he could have stopped the attack like as late as nine ten. I think he said. Yeah, and so basically, what this comes down to in the main crux of what Richard Clark had revealed, because George Tennant initially during the nine eleven commission hearing said that you know this one memo letting the CIA or you know, know that these two guys were in the U.S., wasn't marked urgent, it wasn't really seen by anyone. What Richard Clark kind of revealed was at least a year before 9-11, at least 50 CIA counterterrorism agents knew that these two terrorists with homicidal intentions, again, they were already um, complicit in the USS coal bombing, so they already knew that they were terrorists. Um, they had been granted visas to live in the U.S., and they were never put on a watch list we're talking about over 50 people who were in the loop of this and then omitting that information purposefully from Richard Clark. Yep. And the NSA knew about these guys too. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the one of the weird things. The NSA has also lied about it after the fact and said they were monitoring. They call it like a terrorist safe house in Yemen. They were monitoring it and they got, and, and this safe house was called by some of these 9-11 hijackers that were living inside the United States. And the NSA claims, this is the most unbelievable part of their claim, is they claim, oh, yeah, we knew, like, we figured that there was, like, some terrorist communications coming in, but we couldn't see what number was, like, calling in. We didn't know what number it was, so we couldn't, like, trace it back to who it was. Um, so that's obviously a cover story because it's been proven after the fact that now that we know the NSA was monitoring this specific location, that's the only excuse they can make. It, obviously, it's a totally unbelievable excuse, but that's the official excuse. So it's amazing to me that we're still sitting here in 2018. It's baffling to me that there are still people out there who think that it's batshit or crazy to dig into these things. Yeah. And every time someone wants to defame me, they just pull that up. But here we are, Robbie, where, you know, a 2016 poll, according to Newsweek, found that a majority of Americans believe the government's hiding something about the attacks. Yeah. 54% of Americans understand that something is deeply wrong with the narrative that we've been given from these war criminals who then pursued a policy of death and destruction to this day and institutionalized war crimes and torture. And I think that a really important part of the watchdogs didn't bark is talking about, you know, they bring it to today. It's not just what they refer to as another 9-11 book. They hone in on these agencies and they ask, why do they keep doing this again and again? It wasn't just 9-11. It's, it's every single time, you know, we hear that America is this moral force. Then why is it that our intelligence agencies continue to do the wrong thing? and quote unquote, these evil acts, um, you know, around the world. And not only that, but when it comes to this internal investigations and stuff, the people who were the most intimately responsible for the quote unquote intelligence failures, and they point their names out. They were the first people to really expose some of these people hiding in the shadows of the CIA and, and a lot of these other agencies as being instrumental in the failures 
those people were heavily rewarded. Oh my were God. Heavily promoted where you have people that, that just went on seamlessly to run renditions, torture programs. You have one close affiliate, Gina Haspel, who's now taking on the entire agency of the CIA. It was like the people directly responsible for dropping the ball the most and not doing anything to prevent the 9-11 attacks when they could have got seemingly got promoted the most. So like Rich Blee, the guy that was actually revealed in Kevin Fenton's book, Disconnecting the Dots, that Ray and John later investigated because he was the head of Alex Station. He replaced Mike Scheuer, which is a guy who actually ended up marrying Alfreda Burkowski later. Alfreda Burkowski is the redhead represented in Zero Dark Thirty. So not only did she get rewarded by not being fired, she's now enshrined in history as this like hero. So Rich Blee, immediately after being the head of the CIA Alex station and not sharing this information with the FBI, Richard Clark directly blames him for being in charge of that. He was actually tasked to be the head of the CIA counterterror operation in Afghanistan against bin Laden after 9-11. And as we already know, it was officially announced by the Bush administration that for some reason... They gave bin Laden two-month lead time to escape to Pakistan. It was actually announced on the news that the, the first operations, the first wave of the Afghanistan assault was going to be going after, like, Taliban members. And then next, they were going to go after, like, al-Qaeda bin Laden. And for some reason, this was announced on the news. I'm still baffled by that. I mean, that's a very strange thing. But as we know, bin Laden escaped into Pakistan. Apparently, the CIA couldn't catch him. But seemingly gave him a two-month lead time, and it was the guy in charge of it was the guy who Richard Clark and other people have directly accused of being instrumental in allowing the 9-11 attacks to go forward. So that's yeah, a very interesting the- example of someone who was promoted and then immediately put in a position that also had to do with post-9-11 planning. I just yeah. find that very odd. And that famous video where the Taliban says, we will hand over bin Laden with evidence. Yeah. That he was responsible for the attacks. And That's been erased the US from decided, history. Fortunately, the U.S. decided to invade and occupy um, another sovereign country that did nothing us for the last 17 years, where civilian casualties are at an all-time high. And the opium production is skyrocketing through the roof. And I wanted to read a quick quote from the Newsweek article that is um, going more in-depth about their book, which is amazing that Newsweek even published this. Like you said in the last episode, here we are 17 years later and somehow this isn't taboo to talk about this stuff, even though it gravely implicates the CIA, which is very harrowing, or it should be to these DC Beltway pundits. So Newsweek quotes um, Ali Sufin. He's one of the lead FBI counterterrorism agents whom the CIA kept in the dark about these Al-Qaeda hijackers that we were talking about. He says, quote, it's horrible. We still don't know what happened. And he says 9-11 changed the whole world. So to him and many other former national security officials, 9-11 and these unanswered questions dwarf JFK. Mm -hmm. He says 9-11 changed the whole world. Um, It not only led to the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, the fraction of the Middle East, the global growth of Islamic militantism, (laughs) but also pushed the U.S. closer to being a virtual homeland security police state. Quote, I'm sad and depressed about it said Mark Rossini, one of the two FBI agents assigned to the CIA's Osama bin Laden unit, who says the agency managers mysteriously blocked them from informing their headquarters about future al-Qaeda plotters present in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Quote, it's patently evident the attacks did not need to happen, and there has been no 
justice. And before we quickly get into Saudi Arabia, Robbie, what is your response to, you know, Richard Clark and others who will say, well, why? Why did they block this? According to these people, they were trying to recruit these hijackers as informants. And just a clarification, that is apparently just a theory uh, that Richard Clark has concocted to explain why he believes uh, that this information was blocked to any other government agency. Because he has said this information would have automatically gone to him on the CIA briefings that would come up daily if these two hijackers were in the United States. So that's what his conclusion is that for some reason, the only reason he can think of that they didn't tell anybody was because they were trying to recruit them. Unfortunately, that theory just doesn't hold any water, what really whatsoever. It, it's, why? And I'll, I'll explain why. I mean, actually, yeah. the words of Paul Thompson, who actually was the author of the 9-11 terror timeline that 9-11 Press for Truth, Ray and John's movie, was, was partly based on. Paul Thompson, to me, is one of the most knowledgeable people about 9-11. He's also one of the most responsible "Quote unquote truthers" in the sense that he, you know, he wouldn't even call himself that, but he has an encyclopedic knowledge of it. Historycommons.org um, was the, was basically based around his original terror timeline. It's an amazing resource. Anybody who's interested in studying this stuff should look at that website. Um, it's a very, very important resource. Um, so here's what Paul Thompson actually said in an interview with John Gold about the sort of Richard Clark reasoning. And he, he goes on, and actually, if you want to go to the page, John Gold's book is free. You can go directly to page 976 to read this section. Paul says, I'll just quote just a section of this. He says, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And he's directly referencing the Clark theory. You know, there's rules about informants. Like if you are moles, let's just say you're a mole within the mafia, right? And if you start doing actual assassinations on behalf of the mafia, that's the point that the whole operation says, whoa, stop this guy, pull him out, maybe charge him with murder. You know, you just don't continue to use that person as an informant, no matter what they're getting, because that person has just killed people. That's how law enforcement has always operated. So the idea that these people would be allowed to take part in the coal bombing and then you're just continuing to allow all this to happen just doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, I mean, if you're looking at who would turn, who would you turn, these guys would be last on your list. As I said, they fought in Bosnia, fought in Chechnya. They'd taken part in just about every Al-Qaeda major terrorist operation of the last 10 years. And you would expect them to all of a sudden say, yeah, I think I'll go join the U.S. and work for them. What are the odds of that happening? It makes no sense. And then John responds with, it makes no sense to me, but I don't have an honest theory as to why it did happen. And he says, I don't know why they did it, but I don't think Clark's theory stands up to scrutiny. And Paul responds again with, if I were to be generous and play devil's advocate, you might argue that there was, you know, you could argue a lot of different things. But one thing you might argue is like, maybe the Saudis are playing a double game because these people like Bayami and Bassan really had their loyalty with these Islamic militancy. And they would say, we're watching these guys and they're just living normal lives, nothing to report. They haven't contacted anybody anywhere and so on and so forth, right? So then it's just this colossal screw up and the CIA got played by the Saudis and they never figured it out until it was too late to find out who these guys really were, you know, that they were Al-Qaeda. But that doesn't make any sense either for a lot of reasons. One is that, as I said, Nawaf al-Hazmi was on, was on the move most of the time. 
Khalid al-Midhar was involved in all kinds of intrigues, and on three separate occasions he went back to the Yemen hub and lived there for a significant period of time, like maybe a month or two months. And you have to remember how monitored the Yemen hub was. He's talking about the NSA monitoring it, and how poor their operational security was. So actually he's adding another interesting layer to that narrative where it's like one of the hijackers actually went back to this Yemen hub that was being monitored 24 hours a day by the NSA. So there's like so many things you can add. Right. And everyone talks about Muhammad Atta being the ringleader behind this. In actuality, uh, the, between these two hijackers, one of them, I forgot which of the two, was had directly met bin Laden and is actually one of bin Laden's closest associates of all the 19 hijackers. So that adds another layer of completely unbelievability to the story, that they would let someone in to the country, buy plane tickets, who's already allegedly committed a terrorist attack, um, who was already had like known Bin Laden personally, and just let him do this? I mean, it's it, absolutely fantastic. It's one thing to just be uh, have this attack come and you had no idea, and then you kind of cover your ass, and you're like, all right, well, let's not fire anyone, let's just try to move on and you know secure our intelligence moving forward. But they didn't do that at all. Um, they actually went after people like Tom Drake, like Bill Binney, people who were trying to call into question, you know, people who built this, this NSA surveillance system that was designed to prevent things like this. And they just decided to prosecute them to the nth degree. Um, and that was an, another interesting point is the amount that they've actually targeted whistleblowers from 9-11, Another really interesting point from this, uh, from the book is just talking about, obviously, Saudi Arabia's complicity. Saudi Arabia, an official messaging arm of Saudi Arabia, just recently threatened Toronto and actually Canadian diplomats and the government to basically conduct a 9-11-style terrorist attack in Toronto. Um, they tweeted a photo saying, you know, don't poke your nose in where it doesn't belong and you won't get things that you don't want, something like that. And it was just a photo of a plane going into the cityscape of Toronto. Very shocking. So let's just talk really briefly about Saudi Arabia before we move on to, to other headlines. Actually, let me start with this. The official 9-11 commission said that it found no evidence that the Saudi government as an institution or senior Saudi officials individually funded al-Qaeda or really had anything to do with the attacks whatsoever, Robbie. So what is your response to that? Well, we know that that's not true. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we have already these fake charity fronts that were being, um, money was being funneled to Al-Qaeda. One of them actually, um, Bandar Bush, uh, the ambassador to the U.S. from Saudi Arabia, who was given a nickname by the Bush family, was directly complicit in helping basically launder and funnel this money to Al-Qaeda. I mean, mm. it's actually pretty fucking nuts that this motherfucker and the Bush administration got away with this shit and the news didn't blow this up into a bigger story. Well, it's interesting, too, because they talk about this wall uh, of silence kind of, you know, between these agencies and also between these agencies and the White House and even speculating that, you know, very few people in the Bush administration proper actually were privy to any of this, mm -hmm. which is fascinating because if that's true, which I tend to believe, why would Bush, you know, who's so close to Bandar, they were like brothers, obviously mm -hmm. that's the nickname Bandar Bush, and of course flying out the entire Bin Laden family and, and, you know, when everyone else was grounded, why wouldn't Bush and a lot of other close allies to the Saudi royal family say, hey, hold on, this is crazy, we found this out about Bandar, we're going to fucking cut ties with you. 
you know, especially if they were just, uh-huh. it was totally surprise. And instead they did the opposite. Oh yeah. I mean, not only that, I mean, Richard Clark, he worked for the Bush administration, he worked for the Clinton administration. I'm not going to take things that he says at face value, especially when you factor in the fact that he was the one responsible for flying out the bin Laden, remaining bin Laden family members who were in the United States. He's taking credit for that. So none of them were interrogated by the FBI or any other government agency. So just to wrap this up, um, in this Newsweek article, it talks about how agency officers basically think that, quote, dissident sympathizers within the Saudi government supported bin Laden. Um, moreover, subsequent investigations have revealed that the kingdom's Islamic affairs ministry were actively helping the hijackers get settled in California. Last year, agents of the monarchy were discovered surreptitiously funding a PR effort to derail that bill that allowed those 9-11 families to sue the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Justin. so that's where we're at today. And, and unfortunately, this what this what this has done is a lot of people have spun a lot of these new revelations as things that directly implicate Saudi Arabia and not other entities like in the United States. That is kind of almost a textbook limited hangout to like go only in that narrative direction with it because it totally omits these sort of really crucial seemingly U.S. involvement. Even by proxy, the cover-up oh, yeah. um, makes the U.S. complicit. Well, that's... So, if we're just, just looking, looking at, at it that. from the angle of a cover-up, then yes, you're absolutely right. But it goes so much deeper than that, and right. that's the part that's fascinating, is not as this limited hangout variation is not even going as far as what you just said, Abby, but which actually isn't far enough anyways. Journalists are simply, I think, just too afraid to touch it. It still is a third rail. The only the safest thing to say is that we now have proof that there is some Saudi involvement, but that's in a very limited sphere to only go that far. It, it needs yeah. to go so much further than that. That really shows you everything. It's just the, the fear and terror of these Beltway reporters who are just yeah. essentially stenographers. They're desperate for access. I mean, it's really just a cult at this point of... Uh, It's a weird pathology that I've noticed in recent weeks with a lot of the, you know, the scandal of the DSA that's going on with this one candidate. It's like, it just seems like there's this weird human psychology that is just willful blindness. Absolutely. And and I think that that's the crux of of 9-11 truth. And it's really unfortunate because here we are, like you said, 17 years later, Bush is on a book tour. These people are now involved in actually censoring the internet. Like a lot of these Bush era criminals that are just still floating around behind the scenes. It's fascinating. Do you want to go into that now? I mean, when I first saw it, I, 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 feel, I feel like I read it on Twitter right before I went to bed and I woke up the next morning thinking, oh, that was a weird dream I had last night that Bill Crystal's The Weekly Standard is now on the Facebook censorship board. It wasn't a dream. It's fucking real. Mark Zuckerberg has admitted now that the weekly standard is on their fake news board. Yeah. So there's five outlets that, that enjoy the power to quote fact check other people's work on Facebook. Weekly standard is one of those five. The other, the other four are associated press and factcheck.org, PolitiFact, and Snopes. Um, no left leaning outlet has this special ability to fact check other people's work. Um, Think progress posted an article about how Kavanaugh talked about, 
overthrowing Roe v. Wade. And even though the headline might have been a little bit loaded, the article proceeded to justify that premise based on a lot of other rulings that he had done in the past. Yeah, it was a little bit of a maybe sensational headline. But what do you know? Weekly Standard writers deemed it um, false. And so what happens when an article is uh, quote unquote falsified by these weekly standard fact checkers. While there's serious consequences, um, they lose basically 80% of their future traffic on the site. So they're already demoted. You know, we already know the algorithms have backpaged all of this content, but that's, you're basically putting it to the bottom of people's feeds. Um, When an article is labeled false, Groups that share the article receive a notification informing them that the article received a false rating and that pages and websites that share that piece will see their overall distribution and ability to monetize and advertise removed. So the fact that Weekly Standard was able to apply to do this really shows you just the incredible politics of Mark Zuckerberg, um, acquiescing to the Israeli government, removing 95% of requests from Israel of pro-Palestinian sites, acquiescing to the U.S. government, making it impossible to share information. We cannot promote our content. Um, and now here we are. We're Weekly Standard. They call the Iraq War a war to be proud of. I mean, just talk really quickly about what the Weekly Standard is. Well, the Weekly Standard was founded by Bill Kristol, who, of course, is also the, one of the co-founders of PNAC. Um, Bill Kristol is also one of the people who co-founded the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is also vetting, quote unquote, Russian disinformation and fake news from a think tank in a think tank format. And this is the same outlet that actually wrote multiple editorials saying that Saddam Hussein sent anthrax through our mail. And the, and, and the people who wrote them were very smart people, very savvy people who were involved in writing Rebuilding America's Defenses um, that said that we need a new Pearl Harbor to get all this like military industrial complex fire sale that they wanted. I mean, not only are these three men like still really prominent and credible in, in the resistance now, two of them being Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol, the other Gary Schmidt, he's more obscure, but just to think that they got away with that. And now they're actually vetting fake news on Facebook when that is some of the fakest and most dangerous fake news of all. That in the middle of a hysterical emergency situation where weaponized anthrax is being sent through the mail, they went out there and put pen to paper saying that Saddam Hussein probably did it. That's such inflammatory rhetoric. And they knew it was a lie. To tell yourself, like to play devil's advocate and to say, well, they were, they were really concerned. They might have thought it was Iraq. I don't believe that for a fucking second. They knew this was a cynical ploy to murder up to 1 million people in Iraq and they fucking got away with it. I mean, that's what yeah, they did. Yeah, and this did. is this legitimizes Trump's entire fake news mantra is the fact that the corporate media has been at the forefront of pushing fake news that has sold military incursions that have cost the lives of tens of millions of people for as long as we can remember. I mean, I woke up during the Iraq war and this uniformity with the corporate media selling that war. But that's why this fake news mantra is so ridiculous, because it, it is based in fact, actually, the fact that the corporate media is is weaponized by the U.S. empire to sell its imperial gains. And so when I see things like Weekly Standard is actually deeming what is real and fake news, I mean, it's it's beyond parody, Robbie. It really is beyond anything that I can even remotely think of in this dystopian reality that we're living in. And, um, you know, this is on top of the Atlantic Council, which is also stacked with war criminals and architects of the Iraq war, 
like Kissinger, I'm sure Bill Crystal is probably involved in that think tank as well. And we know military agencies, oil corporations, defense contractors, NATO, the list goes on and on and on. The CIA, spooks, cops, everyone that you can think of, the worst human beings, uh, you know, deep state actors, etc. They're the ones who are coordinating with Facebook to shut down pages. You know, if you have a picture of Fred Hampton, if you're organizing against a fascist rally, it's pretty arbitrary. And then, of course, the removal of Venezuela analysis of Telesor, totally random, right? And everyone's like, oh, you're absurd to somehow conflate this with the Alex Jones thing. Well, are we, though? It's Because so, you look Abby, at who so is working with man. them. It's so fucking crazy. I can't even talk about it anymore on Twitter because people <laughs> just jump down my throat and say that I'm apologizing for fascism, that I'm hoisting up someone on the right um, as an example of how the left is in danger. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing none of those things. And I'm actually trying to say the point I'll try to make again here, um, since everybody keeps misunderstanding it, or I, I don't even really know, that's maybe giving them too much credit. I think they're deliberately misunderstanding it, is that Alex Jones being purged off all these social media things at once, it provides extremely convenient cover for the clear agenda to remove and purge other like controversial anti-establishment entities and pages from the internet. It provides cover for that because no one on the left is going to defend Alex Jones, which I'm not actually doing either. And what it does is it sucks away all the, the attention and the headlines from all these smaller entities who are getting banned, who are on the left. Telesur, like this Think Progress thing that just happened, but the Syrian state TV channels, this is all happening in a very short period of time. And if you don't think there's any relationship between they're targeting Alex Jones and Infowars and what's happening, I I just think you are honestly very naive. And it mark I guess the main argument I'm making is that the purging and banning of Alex Jones marks an acceleration and a real power grab by these factions to try to control the internet. I don't see how that can be argued against. I think that that's a clear example of how they are related. It's related to a larger program. So to think that we can take these companies at face value and trust their reasons for banning Alex Jones because it was, you know, he violated the terms of service, I just think is a very naive thing to be doing. Even if you think Alex Jones is the worst person in the world, I just don't, I don't understand how that's not computing for people. And it's very alarming to me. Well, it's just, it just reinforces that narrative that the corporate media is the real news, Robbie. And so because Alex Jones fits outside of that periphery, it's like Breitbart's fine. Weekly Standard is actually the premier fact checker and Mm -hmm. Fox News is totally good. Fox News is fine. yeah. Yeah. And if you're Alex Jones or anyone else outside of that, then watch out. And unlike Alex Jones, you're not going to be able to create an app where tens of millions of people will join it in a day because you're not going to be martyred in the mainstream media. And let's talk really quickly about this congressional testimony because Jack Dorsey from Twitter, the CEO, he was the one who was the last holdout of that unified purge of Alex Jones's accounts. He was saying, you know, they, he, I think he even made a statement saying that they, let me just step yeah. in and say that he also said something that I, that I wholeheartedly agreed with. And I'm surprised more people weren't going out on a limb to make this point. If you hate Alex Jones and if you think that he needs to be debunked, then why would you want to purge him completely off of these platforms? You, it's actually an important public service to debunk him and critique him. So that was one of his other arguments. It's like, we are keeping this up to allow people to continue to do that. So what happened? Why was Jack called in front of Congress and why did he prostrate himself? And then the next day, 
banned the accounts. Well, that's, I mean, we don't know the actual inner workings of what happened, but I think we can probably fucking guess. I mean, Mm -hmm. it only took apparently Joe Lieberman calling Amazon to remove WikiLeaks from their Mm -hmm. servers back when the collateral murder video came out. So if if that's all that happened there and that's how they removed it, then we can only really speculate on exactly what conversations Jack had with other government officials and sitting congressmen and senators outside of those hearings. I'd say it's very likely that he got a stern talking to by someone outside of that hearing. And that completely influenced his decision to do that the next day. It was just so surreal to see Alex Jones, Laura Loomer, I think Jack Sabobiak was there too. They're all running around talking shit. Alex Jones goes up into Marco Rubio's face. And this was the most hilarious thing because he's like, you know, he's like trying to get him to comment on InfoWars being shut down. And Marco Rubio just oddly pretended like he had no idea who Alex Jones was. He was just like, hey man, he's like, I don't know about your site, man. I don't know who you are, dude. And then like Alex Jones like touched him on the shoulder and he was like, don't touch me. I was like, how is it possible that Alex Jones is even getting up in Marco Rubio's face? And on a side note, is Marco Rubio going to charge him with stalking and harassment like Senator Rand Paul did to me? Because it was kind of the same thing where Alex Jones comes up and just basically asks him a question, except way crazier than what I did. I think it was strategic. He definitely knows who he is. Um, He wanted to pretend he didn't, you know, I think... Yeah, it's hard to say, but I mean, I think that I, I definitely, obviously he knows who he fucking is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a video taken by another reporter after the confrontation where Alex Jones is an impersonation of Marco Rubio, sticking his fingers in his ears and going, I'm Marco Rubio. <laughs> like in front of the camera, like just more spastic, like insane Alex Jones behavior, just like acting like a fucking 11 year old kid. It's weird and- shit. And Laura Loomer interrupts the Jack hearing and she's just like shouting about how she got unverified. And then this guy starts pretending that he's an auctioneer and like drowns her out. It was just the weirdest. Oh, I didn't actually see any of that. Wow. It was the weirdest couple days. Another really disturbing thing that happened right before we started this podcast is I got a notification from YouTube saying our Palestine video is going to get an age restriction because it got flagged for inappropriate content. This is... I think the fifth video of ours that has had an age restriction on it. Um, So this means that people were flagging it in mass, probably a lot of pro-Israel trolls like we know exist. That's extremely disturbing because this is just one step to just outright censorship and probably removal eventually, you know? And as we know, YouTube just shut down all pro-Syria state TV channels, Sama TV, Syrian MOD, and Sana News Agency. Um, and the Syrian presidency, days before the government was preparing another all-out offensive in Syria, which is just so disturbing. And days after, of course, this testimony that Jack was in, you know, and, and they did this big purge again mm-hmm. of Alex Jones on Twitter and, and we're talking about censorship and big tech and how are they going to stand up to fake news. So I just find, th- I almost find this one of the most disturbing things that has happened so far, if not the most disturbing thing. And it really went under the radar. I mean, I just saw one tweet about it and it's just yeah. gone. This is going along with the Venezuela stuff to take down Venezuela analysis, Telesor, days after the assassination attempt against Maduro. These are two of the only outlets that are providing that alternative perspective. 
um, countering the regime change narrative oh God, from yeah, U.S. corporate media. Yeah. And here we are. We are we are doing pre-prog, just like a very heavy agenda showed two weeks before that first chemical weapons attack when Obama was in office. They, the news was talking how they are going to launch a chemical weapons attack. Why do they know that this is going to happen every time it happens? And so this is happening again, yeah. where you have all the media basically preparing us for this catastrophe. They're saying it's going to be the biggest human rights catastrophe in this century. What and is about weird, to happen? Yeah, and it's weird is the Russian media, like RT and stuff, is preparing it for us too. Or it was like preparing us for this attack too, but they're saying they're like spinning it completely differently, saying like the white helmets are getting ready to stage a chemical weapons attack. That is insane. So it's very bizarre on both sides. And this goes along the lines of what I was talking about in the last podcast, that it's very hard to sift through some of these narratives. And both narratives are very strange to me, because how do they know either way? Like a, coming at it from either side, it's, it's very odd. Well, that's just um, typical, like it's a cartoonish um, reaction from the Russian media to just counter the U.S. basically saying, we're going to piggyback on that, but then just say the rebels are going to do it, which is so bad. Why don't they make it about why is the media saying this? Like, what is going on? Show us the evidence. I mean, they should just stick with that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I feel like that would be taking the high road in this case because it just becomes these countering mm-hmm. conspiratorial sounding narratives, really. But yeah, I mean, I continue to find it very hard to believe that Assad needs to resort to using chemical weapons. You know, the U.S. is putting out reports saying we're privy to evidence that this is going to happen again. It just seems extremely weird. And I can't remember any other event that causes such a flurry of policy and commentary other than this you know, recurring chemical weapons attacks that Assad allegedly keeps carrying out. I can't even remember anything else of us getting like a heads up, you know, being like, by the way, guys, like this is going to happen again. Be prepared. Um, Rania makes the good point, just picking out some news articles that here we are 17 years after 9-11 and the media refers to Al-Qaeda strongholds in Syria as rebels still. Um, and especially the largest affiliate and the largest stronghold mm-hmm. left in Syria, Idlib, and essentially in so many words, mourning their impending defeat. Unbelievable. And then the Al-Qaeda stuff in Yemen, we can't forget either where we're working with Al-Qaeda in Yemen because Al-Qaeda is fighting the Houthis. It just all becomes very meaningless when you realize what the war on terror has really accomplished. I mean, and, and before ISIS was ISIS, they were quote unquote Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Right. I mean, so that we can't forget that either. I mean, so it's just very, very strange and very frustrating. I mean, Syria is one of the, to me, one of the more frustrating things to actually cover and discuss. Well, uh, now you're not going to be able to get actual accurate information, at least coming from the pro-Syrian side, because those accounts were just blanketly removed. Yeah. And they all said that they violated their terms of service too. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, Google owns YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is all coming together. It's right. it's super obvious to anyone who's been studying this long enough, to anyone who's seen how this is accelerated. This is obviously all connected together. Alex Jones provides a convenient distraction away from the obvious fact that this is being targeted at people who are resisting the official narratives in places like Syria, Venezuela, anywhere. The sad part is, if you even try to connect it, Why are you talking about Alex Jones? He's a fascist. He should have been purged. My point, which is this marks an acceleration of this 
plan that's been in the works for a long time. And to those laughing off the notion of regime change in Venezuela, another major revelation just came out on the extent of Trump's role in regime change, meeting with dissident Venezuelan military officers. I don't know if this was in D.C. I'm assuming it was. Um, One officer is on the U.S. sanctions list. And according to The Guardian and according to The New York Times and all these other people that reported on this, that Trump, you know, after meeting with them for weeks, declined to aid the coup plot. Come the fuck on, dude. The fact that Trump is actually drooling to invade Venezuela and that that he's even open to meeting with these like rebellious military officials, these coup plotters conspiring to overthrow the government. Um, The coup, let me just explain really quickly. I actually had people telling me like, who cares? Again, people just have been bombarded with so much propaganda about Venezuela that I really do think that there's a consensus now about people who actually would not care because they think that it's good. Because again, the US does good things. So if we're if we're going to be instrumental in a coup in Venezuela, well, whatever, Maduro's corrupt. So what what could be worse than Maduro? First of all, that's fascism. When you are imposing a government against the will of the people, They have already spoken democratically to elect Maduro for another term. And the fact that they are actually entertaining to impose a coup, a military coup with violence, fascist violence and repression that would have to be in place to impose a new rule on a mass Chavismo movement in the country of at least 5 million people strong in a country of 20 million people. That's fascism. Um, And then, of course, the premier human rights defender, Human Rights Watch's Ken Roth, the biggest fucking tool of the U.S. empire. Yeah, there's a million people who are worse than him in terms of their rhetoric, but the fact that he's actually running a Human Rights Watch organization and is out there every day um, being a lapdog for the empire is absolutely incredible. So here's his spin on this story. He, He writes... U.S. conversations with Venezuelan coup plotters are a gift to President Maduro as he tries to deflect attention from his repression and corrupt mismanagement that have sparked hyperinflation, economic devastation, and mass flight of Venezuelans. So here he is twisting a story about Trump working with fascist coup plotters to attack Venezuela instead of the U.S., which is bingo, the world's fucking largest violator of human rights. So he's attacking this, this marginalized country that is under constant attacks, both economically, politically, um, violence being poured in from Colombia, from the U.S. Does Ken Roth even criticize anything about Trump's foreign policy at all? Or does he just use every opportunity to just keep criticizing Syria and Maduro and North Korea? Because it seems like that's actually what Human Rights Watch is designed to do. And the same thing with Amnesty International, a lot of these other human rights civil society organizations. And I talked about this on the AMA thread because someone was like, you know, why do you use Amnesty when it serves your political talking points and then you'll like reject it when it goes against something about Venezuela or whatever. And the problem with Amnesty International and a lot of these organizations is they rely on opposition figures only like they literally only rely on testimony from a lot of these these people who are already tied with the U.S. government and NGOs and stuff. They're not going out of their way to talk to the masses of poor people who are not like online. They don't have a presence in the U.S., you know, so they're already marginalized and invisibilized. It's just it's just very cynical and disgusting. Um, and it's the same thing with Nicaragua. But yeah, the fact that Ken Roth actually twisted this story 
to attack Venezuela instead of actually the biggest violator of human rights, the U.S. empire, really says a lot about him and the entire organization at large. And all these liberal resistance figures, too. I mean, it really brings into focus how their main criticism of Trump's foreign policy is they want him to be more hawkish. Yeah. The only exception that's happened so far in the whole course of all this is that there was a brief moment where the media was covering the atrocities in Yemen. But that's like a blip. I mean, overall, I think that it's easy to predict what will happen if Trump invades Iran or decides to do regime change in Venezuela, that the resistance class isn't really going to protest it. In fact, they might actually cheer it on. And speaking might actually. Of, I mean, they probably will cheer it on. Yeah. And we saw that with this, this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times that was just published from, quote unquote, an insider within the administration. First of all, the New York Times violated their own standards of you know anonymous citing and sources. This was kind of a new precedent that they set and just letting this guy, whoever it is, according to WikiLeaks' own logistical analysis that it's an old white man. Wow, I could have told you that. That's pretty much everyone in Trump's cabinet. New York Times probably does this anyway. I know that they publish anonymous sources all the time. But to publish an entire op-ed like this was setting a new precedent. Mm -hmm. And of course they're going to do it because they want to use anything that they can to um, make Trump lose his fucking mind. And what well, better exactly way to make, what I thought, yeah. make what better way to make Trump lose his mind than publish this op-ed from someone within the administration? And the reason that I'm tying it into what you just said is because this guy that published this op-ed basically is totally okay with what Trump is doing in terms of deregulation, in terms of this corporate tyranny that he's implementing. What was he not okay with? Hmm, budding up to dictators. Oh, so the actual uh, op-ed author says that, that he's like proud of Trump for doing all these other things, but that was the main thing that upset them. Yep. I mean, it's like total resistance bait. Um, It's cannot be trusted. I mean, I actually think it is probably written by a Trump insider, but what I mean is you can't take anything at face value. It's obvious that whoever's writing the op-ed is essentially trying to say, we're the good guys and we're in Trump's cabinet and trying to keep him from doing reckless and dangerous shit. And we're keeping the ship afloat. But it's, it does really seem like PR deflection, like PR reasons to save whoever wrote this his own ass or the asses of anybody else in the, the administration who's loyal to this guy um, as the Titanic goes down. It's like a, it's, it seems almost like, hey, we're actually good. If this administration falls, just know that like we're still good and we were trying to like do right. Um, it just, so that to me really stinks to high heaven. And that kind of goes along with what you just said. And the Trump administration, of course, is saying it's totally made up. It's fake news. But there was a Twitter user who actually analyzed the wording in it and tried to figure out who in the cabinet it might be. And they discovered that this obscure use of the word lodestar that's in the op-ed is something that the only member of the Trump administration they could find that had used this term before was Mike Pence. And he'd used it up to four times before in previous writings. I feel like this information, even if it's false analysis, must have made its way into the Trump administration also. So now Trump is made to believe that his own vice president is plotting against him. I mean, so what is that if that's not Operation Mindfuck Donald Trump, like what you were saying, to get inside his head, to, to throw him off balance, to make him paranoid and concerned? And I have no sympathy for Donald Trump, but what other purpose does this really serve? 
because we don't know who it is. We don't know who the good guy actually is. So what's the real purpose of this? It seems to be basically to get inside Trump's head and to drive a paranoid wedge inside the administration for, you know, for whatever reason that really serves. And then also it goes along the lines again with the mainstream media stoking the flames of this what what is right now a very commonly held belief among Trump's own supporters that there's a deep state coup against him. This totally validates in those people's minds that narrative 100%. That someone from his own administration is going to the New York Times to publish editorials like this against the sitting president. It's very odd. That's also ridiculous to think that this is quote unquote, the deep state, because the deep state means members who are behind the scenes across administrations that are of course. You know, exerting influence. Donald Trump handpicked his cabinet. So I don't. So if this is someone in his cabinet, that's that's all on him, dude. Well, of course it is. But do you see what I'm saying, though? About oh, the, yeah. This, no, of course. It, the, absolutely. It, it's it's like this is even beyond quote unquote deep state coup because this is Caesar like, you know, there's like people in the room with him. Now that he might believe are plotting against his presidency, I mean that's a very intense thing to plant in the mind of the sitting president. Even though I have no sympathy, mother, motherfucker, at all, it's just a really weird thing that the New York Times yeah. would even publish this at all. For right? That yeah, I think that the media is trying as hard as they can to just make him lose his mind. And um, of course, they were going to publish this, and of course, whoever wrote it, either he maybe is on his way out. I think that this person will become exposed relatively soon. And I think that we're going to see who this person is become a resistance leader with a big book deal. Um, Yeah, who knows? But if that's the case, how come Trump didn't know? Or no firings have happened in the wake of it. Right, right. Yeah, it's, um, it's very interesting. I mean, after the Fire and Fury book came out, even though Trump said it was all fake news, he still fired Bannon. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm, um, but mm-hmm. after this Bob Woodward book came out that had all these quotes from John Kelly and all these other people talking shit about Trump and, and, and Mattis, we haven't really seen any real movements to get any of those people out because Trump said it's all fake. None of them really said any of those things. Mattis mm-hmm. and John Kelly have both contradicted what's in the book publicly. But at the same time, actually, there is some other interesting news bubbling up that General Jack Keane is in talks to replace Mattis. So it could be that behind the scenes, Trump is suspecting these people of actually it are like plotting against him or talking shit about him, and he's already making movements to at least replace Mattis. Now, what's interesting about that, on top of what I just said, is that as a General Jack Keane is one of the primary members of the Institute for the Study of War, wow. and he is actually works directly under Kim Kagan, and he is one of the ma- main figures in the Institute for Study of War who goes on television. And goes on Fox News. Incredible. So that's a very weird thing that a Kagan affiliate might be on track to replace Mattis. So take your pick, Mad Mad Dog Mattis or fucking General Jack Keane who works for the Institute for the Study of War. Really scary shit, dude. I mean, we're in a bad way. Wow. Yeah, speaking of a bad way, to follow up on what I briefly mentioned in the last podcast judges being fast-tracked by the Democratic establishment. So while leftists Susan Sarandon and Bernie Sanders supporters are being shamed constantly by establishment Democrats for the Kavanaugh nomination, top Democrats are steamrolling through these conservative judges to make deals with Mitch McConnell and the GOP. So 
what does this all come down to? So judges usually have 30 hours of waiting time each. That's according to Senate rules. Um, and that this is something that Democrats typically take advantage of to delay the action on confirming these judges. So bringing us back to Mitch McConnell, he was a master of it. Remember, he didn't even appoint Obama's nominee, even though he nominated the most middle-of-the-road centrist tool. Um, so Mitch McConnell basically was the master of delaying these times for judicial nominees under Barack Obama. Um, after making this huge hubbubaloo about how leftists are going to put in like lifetime appointments on judges who are going to rule against abortion and God knows what else, Chuck Schumer, he cut a deal with Turtle McConnell to bypass all of these wait times and let them all go through. So as we mentioned in the Supreme Court episode, Trump has already gotten 26 circuit court judges confirmed more than any other president at this point in his term. So another way to put this, one in seven U.S. circuit court seats is now filled by a judge nominated by Trump. That's already how it was. The Senate Democrats conceded lifetime positions to 15 ultra-conservative judges. They'll rule against labor, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, voting rights. Why did they do this, Robbie? Why did they do this? So they could get home to campaign quicker. They all wanted to get home quickly so they could get right back on the campaign trail and and get those Goldman Sachs donations. I mean, you really cannot fucking make this up. So thank you, Senator Schumer. And, And here's what else really just is shocking about this. It would have taken one Democratic senator to say no to this. Not one did. Not one said no to fast tracking these judges. The Kavanaugh hearings, I think they just finished. There was 227 arrests of protesters. Of course, on the right wing, they were claimed that they were all paid by George Soros. So that, that's that. And uh, the Kavanaugh stuff, I mean, it came and went. And, and basically, exactly as we expected, I think that everything's going to go through as planned. Um, the only thing that happened that was noteworthy was that 90%, it was kind of another unprecedented thing that happened, 90% of the documents were withheld of Kavanaugh's documents um, that are usually like declassified or whatever. Yeah, there's an unprecedented amount of unreleased um, documents about him. Yeah. You know, and I think, so Cory Booker tried to be the hero and he was like, I'm going to risk my Senate seat to release some of these emails previously kept from the mm-hmm. public view. So I think the most shocking thing, and we've already talked extensively about how Kavanaugh is very anti-abortion, and he's already said that, that this isn't the final law of the land and that there is a lot of disagreement among legal scholars, obviously him included, about Roe. But aside from that, he has also called contraception abortion-inducing drugs. So really getting into his mind, I mean, this is like a very Pence-esque, you know, very um, right-wing notion that, you know, not only is abortion murder, which you can argue about all day with these Christian evangelicals, but actual contraceptives are abortion-inducing drugs. That's language that you see reserved for like the most extreme groups. Um, So that's very worrisome. There was a weird story circulating in the media about... Zena Bash, who was sitting behind Kavanaugh during the hearings, flashing a white power symbol, the the OK sign, white power hand symbol. And at first, all these media stories were like, no, like there's a town hall story. No, that woman behind Kavanaugh was not doing a white power hand signal and she's not a racist. No, she was just doing the OK sign. So 
at first, if you watch the video at first, it's like, well, maybe that's just like a random hand gesture she's doing behind him. It, 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 it's ambiguous. However, in another day of hearings after this, she does it straight into the camera while looking at it and holds her hand up and does it as a straight up fucking troll. So for anybody to be like, no, the left's going nuts. They're crazy. They think she's doing It's like she blatantly does it to troll people. 100% dude, she does it again. Watch the clip. Who is that? She's I guess he's she's one of his aides. Oh my god. Yeah, she's sitting she's directly an, behind wow. him during the So it's the not hearing. just like a Laura Loomer style like crazy moron. It's like someone who actually works for Oh yeah. Oh yeah, dude. What? It's Stephen Miller-esque for sure. And one of the other things I that you know that came out of the hearings that caught my eye because I'm obsessed with the PNAC neocons was that Patrick Leahy went on like a 20-tweet storm thread about Kavanaugh and how he was working with a woman who goes by the name of Barbara Ledeen. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because she is the wife of Michael Ledeen to get secret information and leaks from other Democratic senators and staffers. And not only that, this is how crazy it was. Patrick Leahy confronted him about this during the hearing. He reveals emails showing that Kavanaugh was receiving stolen emails from sitting Democrats in their staff offices in 2003. And the most bizarre part of the email that Barbara Ledeen sent to Kavanaugh says, quote, this is from 2003, I have a friend who is a mole for us on the left. It just called to tell me the following news. She's basically in this email, she's explaining that, that they have a mole in other people's staffs, like offices in the Senate. Wow. Very fascinating. Barbara Ledeen, this is actually from um, an article from The Guardian. She was a longtime conservative activist who works for Republican Senator Chuck Grassley on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And then another just weird side story to all this is that Barbara Ledeen was actually written up in 2017 for getting in hot water with Michael Flynn, uh, the co-author of that Michael Ledeen book, Field of Light, How to F Win the War Against Radical Islam. Barbara Ledeen and Michael Flynn consulted with the dark web in 2017 to try and get Hillary's missing 33,000 emails. Um, and that's actually all over. You can wow. read that story all over the place. This is just another example of how these neocons and their spouses still have like an inside line into like classified information and shit. Wow. And I just, you know, that kind of got lost. But Patrick Leahy was making a really big deal about this. And just, you know, going back to Venezuela, Abby, talking about these Trump, sort of these Trump neocons, I just got a book called Central America, The Future of the Democratic Revolution, written by Michael Ledeen from 1984, while he was working for the Reagan administration, that was published by the Gulf and Caribbean Foundation, which is a front group to funnel money to the Nicaraguan Contras. Wow. Yeah. It actually it was it was revealed in 1987 in investigative reports that Oliver North used this cutout operation run by an actual uh, senator, the Gulf and Caribbean Foundation, which is run by a Washington lobbyist and former congressman Daniel Quikendal. The foundation, which finances studies of Central American issues, also appears on the diagram of companies found in the North's Oliver North's like secret cache of funds safe. 
So all these different cutout operations were used to funnel this money to the Contras. And this was one of them. And another guy, instrumental in Central America, like neocon behavior during the Reagan administration, Elliot Abrams, was originally floated to be Secretary of State under Trump. So if anyone's in denial still that there's all these movements being made for the same fucking forces that were running guns and neocon regime change operations in South America in the 80s, these same people are involved. I mean, I'm not, I don't know how much involvement Michael Ledeen has, but they're, they're obviously whispering in people's ears. The same policy is being resurrected. I said it before, but this is definitely a bigger push against South America than even during the Bush and Obama administration. Like, this is some really serious shit. Wow. And it's completely being ignored. Oh, yeah, and Oliver North's head of the NRA now, in case you didn't yeah, know Yeah, yeah. Like, how fucking crazy is that? My God. And just the regime change stuff going on in Nicaragua, um, which I just did a giant interview with um, Camilo Mejia. He is the son of a famous Sandinista singer. Um, and he just, and also Max Blumenthal, investigative journalist who spent a couple of weeks on the ground interviewing victims of opposition violence. And that interview is coming out in Media Roots Radio. Stay tuned. But yeah, very similar stuff to Venezuela. And this is all going on still. And it's just really frightening to me that you and a handful of other people, the only ones like really raising this issue regularly, like yeah. that really shows how dire the situation really is, that the left is so fractured and frankly, wrongheadedly, narratively discussing Syria. And it just seems to have like sucked in all the focus and there's barely any focus on this. And it's very, mm -hmm. very disturbing to me. That's what we said, uh, especially when it comes to North Korea. I mean, we always said that when the time comes to overthrow Kim Jong-un, there will not be much resistance because that's what propaganda does yeah. for years and years and years. And that's why even leftists are like, well, Maduro has to go. Yeah, I mean, I like mean, fake leftists, like who the yeah, fuck yeah, are yeah, these yeah, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. a leftist and anti-imperialism, anti-US empire isn't like a primary top five position of yours, then I I, I don't want to talk to you. Top like, I three. really don't, it's not, I mean, I'm not saying, yeah, there's people who focus on social issues, that's fine. But if you're talking about foreign policy and you're coming on the side of US empire and you're on the left, I don't want to fucking talk to you, man. How arrogant are you to be like, um, I actually think that this is what should happen in Venezuela. It's like, I'm sorry, who the fuck are you? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. Pretty soon we'll be hearing about Venezuelan imperialism and how if you're yeah. anti-imperialism, then why don't you care about Maduro's imperialism? <laughs> well, speaking of uh, US imperialism, I mean, First, there's, there's two things regarding the ICC. There was a case that was supposed to bring U.S., I guess, U.S. soldiers or government officials into the ICC somehow because of war crimes that happened in Afghanistan. That was one thing that happened. And also, Palestinians were submitting something to the ICC about Israel. So, of course, good old John Bolton steps up to threaten the ICC. And make sure that that can't happen, Robbie, because obviously the ICC can only prosecute African warlords or whatever. I mean, it's so it's so funny because um, I'm actually listening to John Bolton's audiobook 
um, that was written after he got out of the Bush administration right now. And one of his proudest moments in the book so far before this story even came out was that he got the Bush administration to reject any potential membership for the ICC. And he was one of the most hawkish Bush administration officials who wanted to push this, this agenda. And Colin Powell apparently at first was very hesitant about it and was like one of the only voices of reason of why we should join it. And then eventually he's, you know, he, he tells John Bolton in a private yeah. conversation, you know, John, sometimes I'm really slow, but I come around eventually. So Colin Powell um, <laughs> eventually came around to this idea of why the International Criminal Court poses a threat to, and this is what the neocons say, U.S. sovereignty. Excuse but what me? it does for real is it poses a threat to U.S. hegemony and U.S. war crimes. And, and, it, and, and if you're a neocon, if you really think about it, the ICC, the concept of it is a very threatening thing. And I'll just explain really quickly why. This is why, to, and if you're a neocon, why the ICC is actually such a big threat to U.S. hegemony. It holds U.S. war criminals accountable, similar to the Hague or Nuremberg trials. So this would mean that like people during the Iraq war who committed vicious war crimes like Blackwater, these Afghanistan kill squads, rape squads that would take trophies, they could be held up at the International Criminal Court and so could their commanders and anybody else who's responsible and be charged for murder and be like held up in front of the world. So imagine just for a second how damaging that is to like the neocon vision and like pipe dream. We cannot allow... Mm-hmm. as a, an empire, the most powerful empire on the planet, to have any of our crimes be like accountable to anyone besides our own internalized, corrupted, fixed justice system. Yeah, because then all of a sudden it's on an equal playing field to exactly. the war crimes that we point And guess out who's committed a shitload of war crimes and actually has fucking murdered millions of people and gets away with it constantly? The U.S. government. So who would be one of the first people to really be revealed to the world as being like really fucking evil? Probably someone from the U.S. government. And this is actually what happened recently is the ICC wanted to prosecute some people involved in the Afghanistan war. Um, And that's when John Bolton made this announcement that if they try to do that, the U.S. government will not only sanction them, they'll charge the International Criminal Court with crimes. The people in it. The U.S. government will charge the people involved in the International Criminal Court with crimes. That's what John Bolton threatened. That's beyond what George W. Bush was pushing. I mean, seriously, yeah. let that sink in. Right. But but it's all these fucking Trump people are in such fucking denial. They think he's anti-deep state. They think he's anti-war. If you don't see this as an extension of U.S. hegemony and the military-industrial complex, then you're lost, man. Well, it's so unfortunate because even this anonymous New York Times op-ed kind of plays into that resistance narrative that, you know, he's um, butting up to dictators and war criminals and um, and leaders that are, quote unquote, enemies of the U.S. And so that just plays into this whole thing that, that he wants detente and that he wants peace with North Korea and all this stuff. But as you mentioned, that I thought was extremely astute and important was that his actions actually are more harsh against Russia than even the Obama administration. That's amazing. I think that's just really important to keep pointing out. Well, yeah, it's really funny, too. Even somebody on the left was like, oh, well, you know, that's obviously because like the the resistance and all these people are putting so much heat on him that he like needs to do things to appear to be tough on Russia. What? 
And I was like, hmm, that sounds very, very similar to like the things that Obama did to just like go back on all his promises and continue the war on terror, that he's doing it to placate, you know, these, these forces that are breathing down his neck. Neither one is an excuse, but it is a similar excuse. And just like you said, when you really look at the things Obama did to Russia and to escalate tensions with Russia, in his eight years as president, Trump has actually already done more in his first two years as president to escalate (laughs) tensions with Russia more than the eight years total with Obama. That's a fucking fact. Look it up. It's very easy to prove. Um, Weekly Standard says it's false, Rob. And it's absolutely fascinating that people still think that Trump legitimately wants to taunt with Russia just because of his rhetoric. I mean, like at this point, I'm even having to acknowledge that I'm like got a little bit fooled by his rhetoric. But the proof is in what he's the actions. I think so, that the Trump rhetoric on Russia is probably just a deflection of the whole Russiagate thing. Oh, like, I think so too. Jerk. I think at this point, it's completely attached to his own ego yeah, and own yeah. pride. So to acknowledge that Putin to cave on this resistance narrative would hurt his own ego. It's not yes. even about Russia at this point, right? I mean, right. you know, he said he'll say some things that sound really good, like the you know, getting like lowering our amount of nukes and stuff like that. Again, I mean, look at the actual policy. Stop trusting the rhetoric of a sitting president who's a reality TV show star. I mean, yeah, he's a good talker. Like some of the things he said do resonate sometimes, but try to look past that. I mean, some of the things Obama used to say resonate. Well, look at the actions, the most 100% man. 100% just partisanship, and it kills me. We saw it all happen during the Obama administration. Obama said this. He must have his family being held hostage. Like, why isn't he doing the things that he said? But but he said this. He wants to do it. He wants to do this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's the same thing. Just on the other and side I think the there's aisle. this tendency by people to defend Trump out of a devil's advocate thing because, like, the resistance is, like, saying so much stupid shit, too. Right. Right. You know, even from people on the left. It's, it's, a really, it's a really poisonous dynamic, though. So, Robbie, let's move on to the U.S. police state here at home where police just continue to execute people, assassinating civilians in the street. But the latest story is quite bizarre because this is not a, a police officer killing someone at a traffic stop or you know someone that they deemed a threat. This is something entirely different. A black man, 26-year-old, man named Botham Jean, who was apparently sleeping in his apartment, uh, was shot in the chest at point-blank range by a Dallas police officer, and he instantly died. And this Dallas police officer's name was Amber Geiger. I believe she's only 30. And basically, the main media spin that's going on in, in local Dallas papers and mainstream media is that this was such a tragic accident manslaughter seems like the appropriate charge. Uh, what, a, what a horrible mistake, you know, this person made. Um, the family has questions about it, is what you see that popping up in the media. That's the only, like, counter-narrative coming up about it. But they don't really dive into the details about how the cop's official story is actually complete bullshit. And what's interesting is the first two stories that came out about it were leaks from Dallas police officers trying to spin the story, and they contradict each other, actually. And I'll just explain to you why. The The general official story the Dallas Police Department put out and this officer put out was that she went to the wrong door by accident of her apartment, and when she tried to get in, she 
thought that the guy was an intruder in her own apartment and shot him, even though she was actually trying to access someone else's apartment. So that story, just taking it at face value, it seems very suspicious and very unusual and odd. That just, someone, on, just on its face, that someone would walk into yeah. the wrong apartment and not immediately be like, oh shit, this is the wrong apartment. I'm so sorry. When they see that there's another fucking person as well as the entire apartment's decorated differently because it's not your goddamn apartment. And, and this is what I was just going to read you in this official, well, not official, it's a leaked spin. It says that she went, took the elevator to the wrong floor that was not hers, <laughs> put the key in and struggled with the lock. Keep in mind, this is what the Dallas Police Department is, is putting out via leaks. Geiger then put down several things she was holding and continued to fight with the key when the resident swung open the door and startled her. Geiger believed Jean who was wearing only underwear, was an intruder and shot him with her service weapon. So here's the other story. More sources from the Dallas Police Department, different spin, different facts. Uh, This is from J.D. Miles on Twitter. Breaking sources reveal Amber Geiger told investigators she yelled at Botham Shem Jane to show his hands after she walked into his apartment. Walked into his apartment. Drew her firearm and shot him. Officer says door was unlocked. So where are the contradictions there? The first leak says that she struggled with her key to unlock the door. So that's a very clear Mm -hmm. difference in the official Mm -hmm. story. Now, what's interesting about this second one is this actually contradicted also. I mean, one of the first contradictions I saw with this, a citizen journalist actually went to the apartment complex this took place in, had a tenant who lived there demonstrate what happens when you try to use your key on someone else's apartment door. A red light flashes, like on the lock, just like a hotel. You wouldn't be sitting there struggling with your key for very long because you'd be like, oh, fuck, this is the wrong door. Like, just like if you go to a hotel and you accidentally, you know, you forget your room number and you use your key on the wrong door, there's an immediate moment of like embarrassment. I mean, this happened to me like several times in my life where I've used a hotel door key on the wrong room number and it's like keeps flashing red and I'm like shaking the handle. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like this isn't my room. And I'm embarrassedly walk away to my room. I mean, that's happened to you before, right? Of course. So to think that she was fiddling with her key and she just kept fiddling with it and had to put stuff down seems like a total made up story. Then there's actually another interesting story that came out, another spin, more weird changes in the official story. The Dallas police appear to have coached Amber Geiger on exactly what to say, because she later said the door was ajar on the apartment. Wow. So here's what's fascinating about that, Abby. Another citizen journalist just merely took footage of what those apartment doors do when they're left ajar. And guess what? They have a security spring lever mechanism that automatically closes them. They can't be held ajar. My God. You have to put a doorstop on these motherfuckers to hold them open. More weird lies. So if this wasn't suspicious enough, it gets even weirder. So one of the things that came to mind for me was, is this Dallas police officer simply concocting this extremely bizarre cover story to cover up for premeditated murder? Did she have any relationship with this guy? She had a history of reporting noise complaints against the guy she killed. Well, that's fascinating. Very fascinating. And now they're saying that she's going to use stand your ground as a defense, even though it was not in her home. So people heard a commotion upstairs. 
mm-hmm. and remember, like witnesses hear, heard a commotion before any gunshots went off. So that's also contradicts her story. But Robbie, she said to obey his commands. I mean, what, what was she supposed to do? He didn't obey her commands when she walked into his house. Yeah. And one witness allegedly heard his final words. He said, oh my God, why did you do this? <gasps> oh, oh my God. That's so hard. And here's another interesting contradiction oh. that to me raises the question of premeditated murder. First degree, second degree, you know, maybe not. It depends on what level of premeditated, but this is what's odd. The lawyers for the family actually raised this point. Apparently, on the 911 call, which hasn't been released yet from this crime, murder, they ask her where she lives, and she, wa- she has to walk outside to give them her apartment number. That in and of itself is very interesting, because if you think you're own, in your own apartment, and you've just killed an intruder, like she claims, then you would already know what apartment you're in, or you would just say it to the 911 dispatchers. That's very bizarre. And apparently on the 911 calls, when she openly realizes and, and admits, oh my God, I'm in the wrong apartment, like on the call, when she see, goes out and looks. But according to the 911 call, she doesn't go out and look after she's confused, thinking she's in the wrong apartment. She goes out and looks to tell the 911 dispatchers where she is because she thought she was in her own apartment. That doesn't make any sense. Oh my God. I mean, it's fucking crazy. And he was just in his underwear. He's just in his apartment. Yeah. This this fucking cop (sighs) just fucking blew him away. And she's going to get off. I mean, it really does make you wonder like how many cops in this country operating have gotten away with like premeditated murder by staging a scene and concocting some weird story. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, I I mean, cops are, are clever. They know how criminals commit crimes. They know what things to say. So, yeah, Sean King has been writing just updates on this, you know, because he gets like firsthand information from these cases and stuff. And he said yesterday he was like, I've spent the last five hours reading over 150 articles about the murder of Botham Jean. Ninety three percent of the articles present the ever changing stories of the officer as just fact without even giving a footnote that she has every reason to lie. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And this is why it's so funny when the right says like, oh man, the left is getting us to like hate all police and the police are under threat and all this shit. It's like, dude, the fucking entire establishment defends the police state at every opportunity, every time. Are you kidding me? I mean, the only time they can't is when there's video of police like shooting people in the back and shit. You know, the media, and I mean, even all these police shootings of black men, unarmed black men the media doesn't spin that as like murder they just they they spin it as just like look how look how crazy this is i mean it's like sensationalist you know headlines for them they're not taking like a moral stance on it most of the time i i am just speechless um cops get away with murder every day in this country and but if this woman gets away with walking into someone else's home and murdering him in cold blood i i don't know yeah, it it's really, really it's it really, really, it really is a reflection of like how dark our society is. Just a total side note too: that police officer on camera after he tased like a ten-year-old African American girl who who allegedly shoplifted, and he's on camera um, telling her why he had to tase her, and he was like, "A lot of people are going to get really mad at me for tasing you," and he was like, "This is why we don't have stores in the black community." 
He's like, because you guys just can't stop yourselves. What? Yeah. And that's on And tape? they're like pulling barbs out of this little girl's back because he like taser with this high grade ass taser. Well, I don't know if you heard about this, Savvy, recently, but, and I can't remember the city it took place in, but there was actually video evidence of the police doing this sting operation multiple times where they would pull up a truck that had a Nike logo on it and leave it open and just like park it in the ghetto and wait for people to come in and try to steal things from it. I mean, it's fucking nuts. And they're doing that around the country right now as we speak. Like that's a common police practice. I just feel absolutely sick. World's largest penal colony. Um, the stand your ground laws are unbelievable. The organization that's behind them is ALEC, uh, funded by the Koch brothers. They're responsible for some of the worst legislation that is just incredibly racist and classist. Mm -hmm. And uh, here we are. And going back to Alex Vitale's book, The End of Policing, I mean... It's the broken windows theory where you see a broken window and then more crime happens because there's already a window broken. And so the police's response is to just uh, militarize the fuck out of these communities and, and police everyone for extremely minor violations and just stack these prisons. Like under this, this economic system that we live in, that's what's going to happen. It's going to be like indentured slaves in this penal colony that's just producing shit. We grow up thinking, oh, prisoners make license plates. And that was like one of the biggest moments of awakening for me in terms of the prison industry and the prison industrial complex is when I found out that there was actually a giant corporation that makes, I mean, they make all kinds of stuff, furniture, they're like plucking chickens yeah. and, and they're fighting fires. Like that was just like a footnote on all these deadly fires in California. Like they actually promoted that being like, isn't this amazing? They're like, prisoners are not only doing this and this, they're like, they're also fighting fires. And it's like, we're at that point of this dystopian Mm -hmm. late stage capitalism where we're actually bragging about that. And what's different about th this era and the past is this is like not anything new in the sense that there were prisons in America that would work prisoners to death, like make them slave away until they died. And then we'd try to hide their bodies on the prison yard. Like there's documented instances of that happening all throughout the history of the United States after slavery, well into the, the 20th century. The difference is now we're trying to normalize this and make it seem like this is okay to, that we operate this way, like as this like penal colony indentured servitude kind of thing. America has a very dark history, I mean, of doing this kind of shit. And yeah, I mean, if we really were able to be a fly in the wall and hear how cops actually talked about minorities oh like on a God. daily basis, we would be sick to our stomachs uh, like every single hour. I mean, it's it just unfathomable. You know, um, how they think of people and they dehumanize people. Absolutely. And that's why there's a prison strike going on. I think it ended on September 9th, but it was happening for about two weeks. And it was on the anniversary of the bloody uprising in the Attica prison in New York when several people were just killed in cold blood. So this time, inmates across the U.S. Uh, refused to work they refused to eat, a lot of them, and they put out a list of demands. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to cover this because we didn't have a show going on, and I just, it was just too complicated um, to do an episode about because, of course, a lot of these people are anonymous, and they're putting out you know, letters and stuff like that to conduits who are then putting it out to the press. You can look at incarceratedworkers.org to see a list of their demands and also updates 
Yeah, it's really incredible. And then you see this woman going to prison, back to prison, I should say, for five years. Why? Because she voted and she had a felony conviction. Yeah, so her name's Crystal Mason. She's going back to prison for five years for voting. It's not a federal law that you can't vote if you're a felon, you know? So basically out of the entire country, 6.1 million Americans cannot vote because of prior felony convictions. But it gets really interesting because, of course, the disproportionality of African-Americans. One in 13 African-Americans have felony convictions because of obviously the institutionalization of slavery and going into discrimination from Jim Crow to today. So these disenfranchisement policies are exceptionally ruthless. This actually is not a thing in the rest of the developed world. Shocking, right? Another exceptional thing about America. It's just unbelievable when you look at these statistics and you can go to um, sentencingproject.org to just get a primer kind of on felony disenfranchisement and how just absolutely absurd these laws are that are still in the books and this poor woman. So yeah, it's just a little bit hollow when Democrats want to talk about Russiagate, yet there's no actions being taken on felony disenfranchisement and the cross-check thing, gerrymandering. There's just so much wrong with our so-called democracy. And it's just extremely bizarre that no one, and there's like no actual progressive initiation, even in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to really take this on. You just kind of have like platitudes here and again, like Bernie Sanders just tweeted, you know, it's super awful that she's going to jail. Well, what are we doing about this here? The focus is mainly about police brutality, like on the streets, yeah, there seems to be not as much focus on like how fucked up the prison system is anymore. But and I mean, even Barack yeah. Obama did that mm-hmm. vice special trying to mm-hmm. talk about how fucked up it was, even though he had the power to change it while he was in office. Oh, God. So it seemed like it kind of peaked during that time period, like like kind of at the end of the Obama administration. And then now it's kind of gone by the wayside as an issue. You're taking away their agency. You're like basically rendering them just enslaved to... Uh, their government without ever having any sort of agency to change it or vote. Yeah, or even just the idea of gain, g- having employment once you come oh. out of jail. Oh, absolutely. The felony conviction. I mean, every job application ever says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And if so, what were they? I mean, Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on to Palestine-Israel as a quick update here. Because there's a lot going on there, and what the Trump administration is doing to Palestine is absolutely criminal. He is pursuing the agenda of his biggest donor, Sheldon Adelson. Politico did the math and found the Adelson's 25 million contribution constituted almost the entire haul of $26 million that the Senate Leadership Fund brought in last month and more than half of the $44 million it's raised this year. So basically, Adelson has paid for almost half of the entire GOP budget in terms of donations from political donors. And then when you look at Trump, obviously he's Trump's biggest donor. That was the whole thing about Trump. Like, he's a billionaire, he doesn't need any money. Well, apparently he's uh, carrying out Sheldon Adelson's complete foreign policy goals. So apparently he can be bought, um, unless he always was a crazy, rabid pro-Israel troll. Um, I happen to think that he's actually doing the bidding of his top donor and Netanyahu. So call me crazy, but that's just what it looks like based on all the horrible, corrupt criminal shit that he's doing. So it's shocking how much Adelson actually funds the GOP. I didn't know that. Back to what's going on. I first wanted to give a shout out to a woman named Sarah Wilkinson. Her Twitter is S Wilkinson BC. 
She is my main go-to aggregate for all Palestine-Israel stuff. She is just the best. So the biggest things that have happened, obviously, is this huge BDS victory at the Meteor Festival that just passed. So some musicians canceled, basically saying a statement, saying they don't want to support occupation. Others just quietly pulled out. So the biggest person that was headlining the event was Lana Del Rey. And when we we started to try to agitate against her playing and, and showing her information and stuff, she initially released a statement saying she wants to play music and this should be a unifying thing and she loves all people and that this is an opportunity to bring people together and blah, blah, blah. You know, we kept sending her information and, and contradicting that. And there was so many Palestinians who basically told her, like, that's a really nice statement. But the thing is, Palestinians can't come and bridge this harmonious thing that you want because they're not allowed to come because they're under brutal occupation. And so I think that over time, she got so much pressure from her fans and from Palestinians in general that she actually pulled out. And it was very late notice. It was incredible. And her statement said... um, you know, it wasn't against the Israeli government for war crimes and such or apartheid, but it, I think it was it was a really, really amazing thing that she actually was pressured enough to pull out. And apparently she hadn't played a concert in the Middle East for years and years. And that's another thing why people were so pissed. They're like, look, you're going to come to the Middle East and then play in Israel out of all the places that you could play, you know, and it was at a kibbutz. And so it was branded as like this left wing ish like concert and you know, da da da. So anyway, her her statement says that she will wait until she can accommodate both Palestinian and Israeli fans. So I guess that was the best that she could put out. I'll take it. I think it's amazing. We had no idea that she was going to do this. We didn't even know she was going to respond because why would we think that she would give a shit about Palestine? You know, she's never said anything before about it. So that just shows you the momentum that is building um, where people are just mortified. They don't want to be associated with this. So yeah. just just unbelievably. Except Flying Lotus didn't That's what didn't I was just going to say. It's Unbelievably, Amon Tobin, Flying Lotus, Pusha T, Young Lean, and there were several others that you can look at Meteor Festival. Please boycott these people. Please bring up the fact that they played here. Young Lean, I know their producer. He, they were going to play on Breaking the Set a while back. I'm shocked. Flying Lotus. He already caped for Gaslamp Killer. Well, the th- weird thing about is. him is like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense wh- like why these gigs are so enticing for these musicians. Flying Lotus can get booked anywhere in the world. He's super hot. He's He can get any gig. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that he would still be on this lineup even after Lana Del Rey and, and actually a label mate um, on Flying Lotus's own label, Shlomo pulled out of the show. And I'm proud of him for doing that. It's great. Hopefully others follow suit, but yeah, it's really disappointing to see. Oh, and there's an actually a, a Krautrock legend band, experimental band called Faust that's still in the lineup. And I was just like, why the fuck are they even on the lineup? The sad part is they could probably actually really use the gig, but it's still not an excuse. I, I'm really disappointed to see them still on the lineup. Yeah, it's an incredible uh, how many people were involved in this and I'm really happy to see DJs for Palestine step up now and join this call for BDS. Fortet, Black Madonna, Caribou, as well as many, many others have actually made statements supporting BDS. So I, you know, it, it really is a line in the sand at this point. Do you want to stand on the right side of history or do you want to stand on the wrong side of history? And we're not fucking around anymore. I mean, I will absolutely not support you if you play in Israel. And I think that people um, are going to stay true to that. So you better really think about it if it's worth it. 
I'm glad to see that we're already in this realm now, though, where like BDS is becoming a mainstream thing. It's a really positive sign, I think. Yeah, you're right. It really kind of catapulted in the last, I, I would say since 2014, the massacre in Gaza where they murdered 500 yeah. plus children. I think that was really a turning point for a lot of people. And of course, the Great March of Return where they're just mm-hmm. assassinating people. Yeah, they just killed another teenage boy um, holding his hands up. You can see on video, he throws a little rock, doesn't even get near the fence. And then he's just walking around with his hands up and he gets shot and he dies the next day from his wounds. So that was another just person on the list of assassinations from the Israeli state. Um, People who are just protesting their imprisonment. I just read this heartbreaking article where surfboards are banned from Gaza. um, And there's just people who try to put makeshift surfboards together because apparently surfing is illegal there. It's just like, I mean, you just can't make this up. But the biggest news of all is Trump and the Trump administration rejecting Palestinians' right to return. So already when Trump gets in office, he immediately made it very clear what side of the conflict he was going to be on, even though he touted this both sides of his mouth, oh, we're going to solve the conflict for the first time. I'm going to be the person who's going to solve the Israel, Israel-Palestine conflict. Wow. So first he appoints Jared Kushner. He appoints other right-wing Zionist religious Jews as a team for handling this peace process, so-called peace process, David Friedman, Jason Greenblatt, and then he proceeded to do a really uh, crazy series of attacks directly on Palestinian people and their agency. So moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, defunding UNRWA, which is the uh, U.N. agency that provides Palestinian refugees with aid and relief, which I'm going to get into in a second, and defunding the Palestinian Authority. So just last week, the U.S. defunded hospitals in East Jerusalem to the tune of $25 million dollars. And just this week, it closed the office of the PLO in Washington, D.C., and threatened the PA um, to not appeal to the ICC, like what we were saying, the Bolton thing. So they threatened the PO, or the PA, Palestinian Authority. They closed down the PLO office, and they defunded um, hospitals all across East Jerusalem, which is basically a direct punishment to cancer victims. So that's extremely sadistic shit going on. And if you go back to Adelson, Low blog really points it out that this is Adelson's like wet dream. This is the biggest goal that he could ever envision. Him and Netanyahu and these Likudniks, they want to just completely deny any sort of acknowledgement of what a Palestinian refugee is. The withdrawing of, I think it's 300 million in aid so far that was originally planned for programs in the West Bank and Gaza um, that was given to Palestine is going directly on top of the budget for Israel. So already you had the largest aid package in in the history of the two countries' relations, you know, that Obama initiated right before he left. So already on top of the $10 million, over $10 million every single day that the U.S. just hands to Israel to subsidize, you know, their health care for all, um, the the Iron Dome, all the other crazy shit that we're giving Israel to um, police Palestinians on a daily basis— that 200 to $300 million is just plopping right on top of their budget to give just directly back to Israel. So that's happening. Israel is expected to receive $3.3 billion in 2019. So this is just a little buffer on top of that budget. So Nikki Haley, speaking at a pro-Israel think tank, said this all kind of hinges on how the right to return, one of the demands of BDS, is off the table So this is a very core issue of BDS uh, for tens of thousands of refugees um, that have the right to return to their homeland. This is authorized under the UN Resolution 194. 
And from the Empire Files script that we did uh, on Palestinian refugees, when I went to a couple Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank that are also under brutal military occupation. So it's like a double-edged sword. It's like not only are these Palestinian refugees stuck in refugee camps, they're also under military occupation. So, you know, there's countless Palestinians who fled violence and persecution who are banned from returning. 70% of Palestinians are refugees. And there was this shockwave of mass expulsions. The first one was nearly a million refugees, 800,000 during the Nakba in 1948. Over 500 villages were ethnically cleansed. And another 300,000 during the 1967 war. So the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, tracks that refugee situation. They register hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees all over the world. There's, there's tons in Lebanon. There's tons in Syria, Jordan is also home to 1.9 million Palestinian refugees. But shockingly, an even larger number are internally displaced. So more than 2.2 million Palestinians are refugees within their own country, blocked in violation of international law from returning to the land they live just miles away. They're packed into refugee camps. So within the state of Israel, over 300,000 remain as displaced Palestinians in the West Bank, nearly 800,000 people are unregistered refugees. So 2 million people are packed in the Gaza Strip. 1.1 million of those people, Robbie, are refugees as well. So that was, you know, that was caged off as kind of a surplus of all these refugees. And then that's why they just hate Gaza so much and, and collectively punish Gaza all the time. Uh, it's really, really unbelievable. So this UN resolution that Nikki Haley and Trump want completely off the table is 194. It was issued after the Nakba in 1948. That was authorizing the return back to their homes with compensation for their suffering because they were ethnically cleansed. So to this day, Israel remains in violation of this UN resolution. So, you know, they're violating so many like international laws. It's not even funny. Every single settlement in the West Bank is a violation of international law. This is a violation of international law. The point remains is, is the Trump administration also violating international law by just completely shutting down the last vestiges of Palestinian rights and agency around the U.S. and in Palestine itself. You know, I went to Aida and Balada camp. Aida camp is in Jerusalem, you know, known as the birthplace of Jesus Christ. It's a very dystopian place, snaked with a huge apartheid wall that separated all these Palestinians from like their family. And it just blocks generations from their ability to harvest olive trees around there. I mean, that's one of the only ways that they can provide for their families. And it's also just this super militarized occupation um, that they constantly raid these camps, like almost on a daily basis. They arbitrarily shoot kids. There's people who have died from the shooting of tear gas canisters in the homes. This is all times of the day, almost every day. We were actually lucky to not see a raid while we were there. But we spoke to this guy, Munter, um, who took us around on this amazing tour and he just told us horror story after horror story about how much they raid these camps. There's even on video of IDF troops barging into one of these camps at night and saying, we are going to gas you to death to like this little kid standing there. So this is what the reality is like in these camps. They're packed to the brim. You can see I took a tour in Balata camp. It's another camp that's kind of a hotbed of resistance um, in Balada, there's 28,000 refugees packed in this space. No one would want to live like that. They have to store their water in little water tanks, again, that the skunk spray from IDF soldiers goes and, and contaminates their water supplies for the entire month. Just little things to completely fuck up their lives on a daily basis. 
But you just have to keep that all in mind when you hear stuff about Palestinian refugees. Because Benjamin Netanyahu describes UNRWA, the agency that was providing basic amenities, like literally not just not just school, but actual like like life-saving medication and basic things that humans need to survive. And and to just cut off the funding completely, like countries all over the world are trying to desperately step up. Um, but Netanyahu, again, he loves this, Robbie. He says he's he says that the UNRWA was a refugee perpetuation agency. He says Trump has done a very important thing by halting its financing. State Department spokesperson Heather Norrit said that 1948 refugees should not share that status with descendants of the refugees and that the UNRWA basically, quote, endlessly and exponentially expands the community of entitled beneficiaries, privileged entitled refugees that enjoy the status of refugees when they're not actually refugees. They're just descendants of the refugees that we ethnically cleanse and are keeping housed in these prison camps. So, you know, the U.S. in 1950 was actually behind the establishment of UNRWA, and promised that it would lead to the implementation of that resolution 194, which was the unconditional right to return. And it would only be dismantled if that resolution was rejected. And Trump cannot just reject this single-handedly. So it's absolutely insane. Um, well, I'm just and, thinking, Abby, while you're yeah. saying all this, is that explains the timing of this also explains why John Bolton made such a staunch yep. statement about the International Criminal Court, because guess who? We probably number one in line to get implicated in war crimes and like nation state crimes. Israel. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. I mean, goddamn, think about it. I mean, if the International Criminal Court is able to bring in Israeli officials, man, that's the the beginning of the end for them. They're fucked, dude. And Um, that's, and that's why they have to fight against this tooth and nail because they know that eventually the tide is going to turn and not just against Israel, but against the United States too. Like it, it, it's obvious why they're well, yeah, taking no. such a staunch. Yeah, no, he. Yeah, no, John Bolton. That was part of it, where Palestinians were trying to basically introduce Israel to the ICC because of the Great March of Return, and Bolton threatened it immediately. I mean, that that's kind of the impetus of this, alongside the Afghanistan thing. And so the U.S. policy now is recognizing the existence of only half a million Palestinian refugees. So this, out of the total of almost six million Palestinian refugees that actually exist. And this is recognized by UNRWA. This is a UN agency. This is not like a controversial thing. So they're just stripping the status of nearly 6 million people. I'm sorry, of nearly 5 million people. And this is, again, one of the core issues of the conflict. You know, this is a, this is a really, really core issue. And, you're, and Trump is just, it's just disgusting. I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It is absolutely heartbreaking. No, I mean, and if you want to talk about neocon behavior, and now the neocons, you know, are doing things, the bidding of Israel or whatever, which I don't necessarily agree with that paradigm. I think there's a very mutually beneficial relationship there. Then how could you see what Trump is doing as not a continuation and an escalation of neo, the neocon paradigm? George W. Bush never did this kind of shit. Yeah. Like he didn't go to this, this length or these lengths. I mean, he didn't move the embassy to Jerusalem, even though there was all these resolutions passed saying, yeah, we're going to do that. Like, you know, everyone seemed to agree with that symbolically, but no one ever actually did it until the Trump administration. This is all like being rushed. Yep. In a tweet, Netanyahu said, the weak crumble are slaughtered 
and are erased from history while the strong for good or for ill survive. So this is in the midst of all of this. He tweets this bizarre thing. And then in a leaked email reported by Foreign Policy Mag, Jared Kushner, of course, Trump's advisor and main you know, broker of peace in the Middle East, said it's time to, quote, disrupt UNRWA, end quote. He added that, quote, sometimes you have to strategically risk breaking things in order to get there. So basically, they just want to say, hey, there's no Palestinian refugee problem because there are no Palestinian refugees. So that's an easy way to just be like, what? You know, you remove the status of refugee and the problem's gone. Boom. Wiped your hands clean. And then you have just the West Bank. I mean, these refugee camps are mostly in the West Bank. But again, the West Bank is split up into different areas. Area A, B, and C. Area C is under Israeli security and administration. And in Area C... 180 Palestinian villages exist, and they are constantly raided, constantly brutalized, raided, and attacked by Israeli soldiers. So, you know, in Hebron, which is another place that I've talked to a lot about, that, that's one of the only places that's actually a city center, that a settlement was built inside of a city center, and then militarized IDF forces, like, destroyed the city, this Palestinian city, and created a ghost town. There was just this video of this tiny little girl climbing over, like, a 20-foot blockade to try to get into her home because Israeli forces just like randomly put this giant gate blocking her house. And so she's like dangerously scaling this fence that someone just happened to tape. I mean, this is going on on a daily basis, like we said. Um, There was just another incident where um, the IOF, I want to call it the Israeli Offensive Forces, killed a Palestinian named Al-Khalil. Settlers were kicking him until he bled out. They claimed that he had a knife on him. That's what they always claim. And uh, another thing, and I'm getting this, basically most of this from that Sarah girl that I talked about, Um, but just a couple more stories to finish this up. Israeli bulldozers, this is according to the Palestine Chronicle on July 28. Israeli bulldozers destroyed a water pipeline supplying the northern Jordan Valley um, and declared the entire area a closed military zone. So this is another thing, like I just said, those 180 um, Palestinian villages that exist in Area C Israeli officials just randomly will raise the land and then declare them a closed military zone for live fire operations or just random drills. And they just do this completely randomly and arbitrarily, and then they'll just demolish all the homes and be like, we need this for for a military zone now. So nearly 20% of the occupied West Bank has been declared, quote, firing zones since the 1970s. But according to the UN, nearly 80% of these areas are in fact not used for military training at all. They just do this as an attempt to annex the land more and more. Another story from Haaretz, um, Israeli border police demolished four buildings that were erected without permits in the Palestinian village of Al-Walaja, wounding 10 people in the process, and some people were claimed to have been shot with live fire. 40 people were said to live in the buildings. Um, During the operation, several dozen residents barricaded themselves in one building and were throwing rocks at the police. They were evacuated by force with gas grenades and rubber bullets. Um, In the last two years, construction of the separation wall near the village was completed, though it severed villages from much of their farmland. So this is just another, the whole permit thing is used as a reason to demolish buildings and just destroy infrastructure because they don't authorize permits for Palestinians. So they will build them um, because they have to, because they, you know, family members are living there and they have to build extended rooms and stuff. And then that will be caused to demolish their buildings entirely and then just raise their villages. So 
You know, back to Loeb blog about Sheldon Adelson capturing the GOP. It's very incredible because Adelson is so outspoken about his priorities toward Iran and toward Israel that you really have to take that into account because Trump has really delivered on Adelson's foreign policy wish list. After winning the election, Steve Bannon spoke explicitly about Adelson's foreign policy agenda. In the book Fire and Fury, um, he wrote, quote, pivoting from Trump himself, Bannon plunged on with the Trump agenda. Quote, day one, we're moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Netanyahu's all in. We know where we're heading on this. Let Jordan take the West Bank. Let Egypt take Gaza. Let them deal with it or sink trying. Where's Donald on this? Asks Ailes. The clear implication being that Bannon was far out ahead of his benefactor. He's totally on board, Bannon replied. It is so fucking disgusting and crazy this is one of the biggest funders of his campaign who is literally pushing through an Israeli agenda that matches up perfectly with people like John Bolton and all these other neocons, including people like Bill Crystal and Robert Kagan. You're telling me they're not sitting there secretly loving on, on some level, these policies happening with Israel and the Trump administration. This is all shit they wanted before Trump. So now they have to pretend like, or just ignore it because they don't want to make it seem like they're okay with the things Trump is doing. Adelson is completely pulling the strings here. It doesn't take a brain genius to figure that out. You know, when people say, oh, Israel's controlling the government. No, you just follow the money, dude. Adelson is the biggest donor to the GOP. He just paid for the half of their budget. <laughs> like, yeah. And he was Trump's biggest donor. I'm sure if it was someone else who was Trump's biggest donor, he would probably be moving forward on their foreign policy dreamless. But it just happens to be Sheldon Adelson. And what does Sheldon Adelson want to do? Um, eliminate Palestine and go to war with Iran. And what is Trump's main focus since he's been in office? Hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, you know, the Palestinians, this is an illegal occupation. These refugees have the right to return. Uh, this hyper-militarized subjugation of people that have next to nothing reveals something very telling. I mean, it reveals that Israel is absolutely terrified of their plight and they want to just erase them from the world. It's just disgusting. These people well, have the right to return. Them yeah. on, in so many different ways. It's like, what mm -hmm. pot, What could they do at this point to dehumanize them even more? Mm -hmm. They've said that they're, they're, they worship death. They teach their children to be suicide bombers. They just everything under the sun. They're human shields. I mean, everything, everything to dehumanize them. And I'll leave you with a quote from um, Munther, who took us on that beautiful tour that you guys should check out. And I'll leave this on the timeline in our show notes. Um, we're not leaving show notes on the actual SoundCloud timeline because SoundCloud fucked it. So look at the actual description to find some notes that we talk about during the episode. But, you know, I asked Munter, he was an extremely intelligent guy. And by the way, he got arrested and put in prison for, I think, six months after we saw him. And he came out of prison looking extremely gaunt and like he had been starving in there. Um, but it was, he, he basically got arrested because he organizes um, civil disobedience, nonviolent actions in this refugee camp. But I asked him, you know, why do you think that Americans don't understand or sympathize with the plight of Palestinians? So obvious what's going on, especially when you're here on the ground. And he said, it looks like there's a war between civilized people and uncivilized people. He said, this is not true. He said, this is not a war between Muslims and Jewish or between civilized people and uncivilized people. This is a war between occupation and occupiers. We are occupied here and we are fighting for our freedom. That encompasses the struggle. And if you don't understand what's going on, and if you somehow support Trump as this anti-interventionist, and if you don't get what they are doing, 
these criminal actions to dehumanize Palestinians and remove them um, from even the discourse. I feel like this is just one of the most crazy things that any government has done. You know, even though I we've agree. always been the staunch defenders of Israel and, and showering them with billions of dollars, like no one would have ever dared to do this because they always wanted to maintain the air of like, oh, we're, you know, we're still the, uh, we're still debating peace. We're still the peace brokers. Yeah. We're, tr- we're still on the table trying to figure out how to like make this work. And that's why this token gesture was given to fund this refugee agency. And so to just yeah. rip the carpet out from under this and just let her, literally let cancer patients and refugees die is fucking criminal. It appears to be, and at least in my lifetime, the harshest U.S. policies towards Palestinians ever. Absolutely. And that's just shocking that that's not more talked about and that Trump is somehow able to float by on being this anti-deep state, anti-neocon, anti-globalist president. And yet he's literally doing everything that Israel ever wanted to do to accelerate their ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. Join BDS, download the Bicot app, and, you know, BDS works. It really, really works. How is that app even still alive? Right. Well, Zionists have tried to... Yeah, no, well, they've already tried to do like a counter attack within the app itself to like boycott like Palestinian stuff. What do you mean? But, like it, they've, they've tried to do like a counter app to like support Israel in the oh, app. Like, so there's like an app buy, to like, like boy- to encourage you to buy Israeli yes, goods and products. Yeah, so they've, they've tried to do it, but I think there's enough autonomy within the app that they still are allowing the BDS app to flourish. And it has the most members, I think, of, out of any. I'm, I'm actually really surprised Apple. Campaign. Is this like an Apple iTunes app? Yeah. So you have it on your iPhone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, um, that's surprising to me. And that's just another example of like something that might just randomly disappear one day because of terms of service violations. Yeah. Well, I mean, get it if we're already at the point where Weekly Standard is telling Facebook what's fake news or not, how soon is Weekly Standard going to be telling all these other places? Unbelievable. Well, thank you for listening to this extended podcast. We wanted to give you guys kind of a, an extra little bit because we're so happy with the donations and all the support. Um, Please rate us on iTunes. Um, Please subscribe to our podcast and please check out Patreon. We have a ton of new tiers. We're trying to figure out some innovative ways to print Robbie's awesome custom artwork. If you haven't seen (laughs) the new piece on John McCain, wow, you really have to check out his art. Please join our $50 or $100 tier per month if you can afford it. And you will get a special gift package from me, as well as um, the print that we're talking about. So check it out on Patreon. And even for as little as a dollar a month, that really helps us out. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for all your support. It's incredibly meaningful. Thankful for it every day. And we will continue to bust these out on a regular basis. And we've been getting some good feedback. Um, Thank you, everybody. If you want to check out any of my own work, Um, I'm still selling copies of a very heavy agenda. We're running a little bit low on the stock. I'm thinking of maybe repressing it, but there's about 75 copies left of the trilogy, the box set on all the movies right now. So order them before I have to repress them. I don't know. You know, there might be a delay in between that. Um, It's still available on Vimeo on demand. Follow me on Twitter at Fluorescent Gray. And and our podcast is also available on dozens of platforms, um, dozens of apps, dozens of streaming platforms. So, yeah, help spread the word. If you're missing 
the podcast on any of your apps and interfaces, please let us know because uh, we really want to get it out there on all of the apps. And we heard from someone with an Android that it was missing. Did you ever figure that out, Rob, by the way? No. Yeah. So if anyone has an Android, let us know if you're able to find our podcast on all of the available apps so we can go ahead and take care of anything that's missing. But yeah, thank you so much, everyone. Um, Let us know what you think. And yeah, always appreciate your support. Thanks so much, everybody. Take care. And remember to go to patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio.